to downtown. Yeah, um, missed and peeved. Miffed and peeved. That's a way of saying like you're angry or you're mad. Don't be miffed and peeved. Miffed. Don't be miffed and peeved. It's a real. It's a real. It's a real. It's a real one. I don't use it, but it's not in your vocabulary. Down to dunk. Yes. This is Stephen Adams. Don't be miffed and peeved. No, you can't be miffed and peeved. Sorry. This is Stephen Adams. You can't be miffed and peeved because you're listening to Down to Dunk. Welcome to Down to Dunk. I'm Andrew Schlecht. Our podcast is a part of CLNS Media, DailyThunder.com. Also featured on Dash Radio at 5 o'clock Central Time on Monday, Wednesday, Friday. I'm not your host today. Your host today will be our good friend, Michele Barra. You guys are in for a treat. So he has a friend, Rick Foyce. He is an assistant coach for Gonzaga, and they're going to talk all things scouting. It's a fascinating podcast. It's a really good conversation. It runs like about 40 minutes. So please listen to this and give us some feedback. We'd like to do probably some more things like this, kind of inside basketball, inside kind of the recruiting process and the way uh, that NBA teams are, are looking at players. So uh, this is a really neat and interesting podcast that you really aren't going to get anywhere else. So uh, please message Michele or tweet at him, let him know how much we appreciate him. You can follow him at Mikey Barra and follow Rick at Rick Foyce, F-O-I-S. If you're interested in his work, make sure you follow him on Twitter. I just had a baby. So this is why I am not recording a podcast. I'm just recording the intro and uh, going to talk about our great sponsors. So uh, I appreciate all of you guys listening and for the support that you guys have given me through social media and things like that. Uh, Mom and baby are doing awesome. Uh, Everything is great. So I appreciate you guys. You guys are the best. Be sure to leave us a five-star iTunes review if you have a chance. That's still super helpful. And uh, something else that's helpful is going to eat at Andy's Frozen Custard. It's helpful for us because it uh, shows Andy's that their message is getting out. But it's also helpful for you because I'm telling you, Andy's is amazing. It's summertime. This is the time to dig in for some ice cream. And Andy's has the best frozen custard that you can buy right now. You got to go get, if you're into just fresh fruit, they have their peach concrete. It's got fresh peaches cut up in it. It's unreal. And then if you are have a really big time sweet tooth, the key lime pie is unreal. You've got to go check that out for sure. It's got real key lime pie just mixed in. It's got the crust. It's got everything. It's oh, whew, it's very good. Please support the people that support Down to Dunk and eat at Andy's Frozen Custard. Also, our show is brought to you by Early Upgrade. So if you are a manager for a big company or you happen to own a business and you guys use iPads, cell phones that are owned by your business, you're going to need to contact the people of Early Upgrade. Not only can they get you your devices quickly, they have a three-day turnaround once they receive your devices. And even if you have devices that don't work anymore, you're going to get value from them, which is a really great perk of Early Upgrade. But just the people are fantastic. You're going to really like dealing with these people. They're easy to talk to. 
They can fix your problems quickly. The customer is their number one priority. So you've got to check them out. They've been in business nine years. They operate nationwide. They're just a fantastic company and a really easy company to deal with. So early upgrade for your iPad, cell phone needs, tablet needs. This is just the company to go to. Their prices are fantastic and the people there are fantastic. So please go check out earlyupgrade.com. And now, please stay, listen to Michele, send him uh, some tweets later and let him know how much he loved it. And uh, I'm not sure when I will talk to you guys as far as a podcast goes, but uh, just continue to download, tell your friends about our show, and hopefully we will talk again soon. Hello and welcome to a new episode of the Down to Dunk. This is your temporary host, Michele Berra, and with me today I have a very good friend of mine, Ricardo Foyce, who is an assistant coach at Gonzaga. Welcome, Rick. Thank you guys for having me. I wanted to have Rick because we basically start chart side from an idea that we had three years ago. And we we became friends. We have like a lot of uh, chat about basketball. And so I wanted to have him on to, to discuss uh, a few things. And I want to start uh, from analytics. And first of all, like when we decided to go and do this chart side stuff, the first stats that you were interested in were uh, lineups data and uh, ratings um, according to those lineups and charts, like which kind of shot distributions, uh, rating they, uh, certain lineups has. And also you wanted to know the impact of a certain player on certain lineups. And so are these things still relevant? Of course they are. Uh, I think modern basketball is... Uh a very important piece of the puzzle to have. And uh, when I first told to you, clearly we were lacking some of those info and those data to be able to have a complete understanding of the picture. And I think that makes it a lot harder to make certain decisions. It's a tool that, especially nowadays, with all the data that is available, uh, with the, the high-level coaching and the high-level playing from players is something that can really help a team uh, move to the next level. It is something that can help a player move to the next level. Uh, so it was something very important to me, still very important to me, without going overboard with it. But having that part of the puzzle is certainly something that helped the present and help the future of a team. We all know that now, as you said, there are a ton of new analytics. Uh, there is like uh, live tracking data, customized reports that every team has. So do you think that the world of basketball analytics still is lacking on, on some part? Like, for example, I always question, is there any way to really uh, trust some defensive metrics. Because like offensively, there are a bunch of stuff. Like if a player shoots that kind of percentage from an area of the court, then you can reasonably say that that area will be a strength or a weakness for him. Uh, defensively, it's much, much harder. So how does a coaching staff like yours goes at trying to understand the value of a guy on defense? First of all, you go by your eyes. Uh, it's pretty easy at any level to see who is a good defender, who is not a good defender, obviously. But then there is a lot of small things and players that actually impact your defense even when you will not say necessarily that because they're able to make plays. And mm -hmm. modern basketball, especially at high level, is always making plays. 
at the end of the day because you'll end up in a situation in a gray area and you'll have to make a decision. Defensively and offensively, but especially defensively, there are players that make the right decision. They're able mm-hmm. to bluff and recover and block shots and go and get a rebound. It's not necessarily their rebounds. And there are players that can do that only 50% of the time. And there are players that every time you watch video, you see them, they're not doing it. Now, I personally trust numbers like a defensive rating for a player, for a lineup. I think it is something like in the long run, even in college basketball where there is less games, it is mm-hmm. something valuable. Mm-hmm. When a lineup is giving up a lot of points, it's probably not playing great defense. I, I don't really believe in bad luck going for 30 games. Yeah, sure. That, that, that makes sense. But how do you, like, lineups can like can be dependent on many, many, many conditions. Like you play against the starter, you play against, like, uh, second Absolutely. units. So how do you parse, like, uh, isn't isn't the, the, the stats were lacking of a real metric to, to, to parse, like, individual defense, uh, trying to, to take uh, team defense uh, away as much as possible? Yes, but the, the way I look analytics, and, and this is my, my big, big uh, key in analytics that I think is very important, is, and many people miss this part, the use of analytics is to build a culture. This is what good teams do. They use analytics, they use those numbers to build a culture of what they want to be. Mm-hmm. So you can focus in certain areas and you can build the culture. The players know you care about those numbers. The staff cares about those numbers. You work towards getting better in those things. So let's take individual um, individual defense like we were talking about. Let's say you want to improve rebounding. Mm-hmm. You got to go and look at some kind of metrics in rebounding that you can digest for your players mm-hmm. and make them aware of it. For example, you define what a rebounding effort is. You mm-hmm. can look what a rebounding effort is. And then you evaluate every player, every play. Do they get to the number you want to be in the rebounding effort? Yes, no. At that point, you got to correct that if they don't make it. With drills, with videos, with whatever you need to tell a player to do it. But that's a way to build a culture through analytics. Well, that's that's very interesting. I mean, uh, there are like plenty of examples in terms of NBA basketball, for example. Like, I, I think that Houston tried to do that. Uh, in some sense, uh, Oklahoma City tried to do that in terms of offensive rebounding, for example. I mean, they 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 put like a real target in in, in doing a certain thing analytically, like uh, getting a good percentage of, of offensive rebounds without sacrificing transition defense. So I I, I kind of like uh, this way of thinking. Uh, but there are like When you say that now uh, you have your team and you want to add uh, a player and you want to maybe uh, include a new player into your uh, rotation or even into your roster. Uh, and like this is basically what you do every year uh, at the college level. You have to, to recruit, you have to try to go out and see uh, which kind of player can fit your, your team. Uh, but there are leagues, like for the NBA, it's kind of easy. You have college, you have plenty of games, even if, We just discussed that 30 is not a very big number. But there are situations, like when college go out and search for international players or even high school players, there is nothing there. So how do you go and try to, to, 
to like to look at the few numbers you have and then uh, how do you evaluate uh, talent when you when you don't have basically any evidence or little evidence numerically? Uh, well, I think there are certain things that you you look for mm-hmm. in a, in a, in terms of a team, in terms of what you're familiar with and what your situation is. So uh, the, the best NBA comparison that I can do is kind of with the Cleveland Cavaliers, with LeBron mm-hmm. in the last year. They knew what they wanted to get around him, mm-hmm. you know, in uh, before when, when they went and trade and did, the, did all the big trades. Mm-hmm. And they went and looked for specific players to fit that role. Mm-hmm. So I think in college, uh, obviously, you're going to recruit high school kids. So you're trying to evaluate kids that are already done maturing body and mentally kids that are kids uh so you have to you have to do a good job certainly on on understanding at what point of the the curve they are in terms of progression of their game but you also want to want to find the, the biggest thing to me is you want to find players defeat what you're doing mm-hmm. ex- unless you find some exceptional talent that you can build around him, if it makes sense. Now, when you have those role players, you have the exceptional talent. Now, I always say we like to have a couple of projects. Some mm-hmm. of those guys, they're like, okay, they have the physical tools or they have uh, some specific particular skill that we like. Can we build around that? And now we have uh, two, two, three years from now, I think one of the greatest things that we do, but all the winning programs do in college is somebody leaves and then the year after you have somebody that's been in the program two years already that step up and now is like an NBA or borderline NBA caliber guy and everybody asks, where did this guy come from? Well, that was the project that you brought in three years ago. I'm glad that you mentioned the um, fit, like the specialist, like fit versus talent idea. Uh, because in some sense, I think that in the NBA, uh, there is a run for certain um, prototypes, like three and D. You have to shoot, you have to, to play defense full stop, or you have to shot to black shots and shoot threes. But sometimes I think there is, we are kind of forgetting in terms of uh, talent evaluation, the idea that if a player has talent and can do multiple things on the court, even he can he can't shoot from three, he can be still valuable if inserted in the right context, right? Yeah, I think it's always like a generalization of players. They need to do this and that because when you go and look, uh, all the winning teams, they always have players that they were kind of like misfits in other places and now suddenly look great in a certain system because they find a role and they didn't build their role. To me, mm-hmm. that's it's a little different. Um, sometimes many players in a league like the NBA, players are very well known, like coaches, scouting. Uh, there is a, I want people to understand, there is a really high, high level of, of knowing what players they have and how they want to use those players. But sometimes because of that, by nature of that, players get put in a box and sometimes it's hard to get off that box. And uh, I mean, the best example I can do uh, knowing him and because of Oklahoma City is Sabonis with Oklahoma City is a spot up four. He's playing some minutes at the five, but mostly is like outside the three point shooting threes with 
relatively good success for a rookie. Mm-hmm. Goes to Indiana, he plays backup five. Now he can move, he's a natural fit. Now he's playing great. Okay, so clearly you see that. Maybe if he stay, if he goes and is traded somewhere else where they see him as a four, you never see the Sabonis that played last year with Indiana. This is what I mean when like people sometimes know you so well, they try to put you in a box because you are capable to do that. Yeah. But sometimes maybe like in another spot where ideally you don't you don't want a short wingspan six ten guy. It's not really the like what NBA teams are look for to win in the NBA. But at high level at least. But Sabonis clearly was that kind of player. It was a perfect fit with Miles Turner and was a perfect fit with uh Tadeus Young and and those players, everybody match very well with each other. Yeah, I, I think that uh, part of the idea uh, of, of OKC was to start him there, building experience in that role. And then once Enes Kanter contract uh, was to expire or um, like was up to his last year of the deal, they want to move him in a, in a backup role. But, but like the example is exact, is very, very important. To me, it shows that somehow when you have talent, like clear talent as Sabonis, uh, a guy that can understand basketball immediately, he's a guy that if you, if you tell him like, uh, or at least uh, I remember uh, scouting him at Gonzaga because of what we do, uh, what we did uh, three years ago. And I remember him being almost 100% of the time in the right spot and doing the right decision and do the, the thing that helps you winning. In his first year at, Gonz- at uh, Oklahoma City, uh, a thing that it wasn't spoken enough, or I, I tried to uh, with my, um, uh, well, with the pod that I did, was he was able to be effective on defense in year one. That speaks so highly of his uh, IQ in terms of basketball. But anyway, um, enough about Sabonis. We all love him. We are clearly homer for him, and so our opinion really doesn't count. But to me, Sabonis, uh, it's... it's um, helps uh, us transition into a point that I want to discuss with you, which is off-season working. Like, you work with Thomas probably every summer uh, for a bit. And I want to understand how that goes. So, uh, who decides which kind of things about his game to improve? Like, is the player that one, that asks you to train on certain stuff? Or is you that, like, try to uh, guide uh, the training towards specific area uh, that you think will help him improve? <coughs> Well, help well, I always think like developing, okay, and, and working out and get better is is a two part process, mm-hmm. and it, and those two parts have to go together because otherwise it's impossible to have success. The first one is you have to improve what you do in your team because that's huge. Like you have to be able to like the situation where you are in your offense and and your defense, you have to work on those. So it can be short roll, it can be pick and pop, it can be whatever situation you happen to be a lot in your team and your team needs, you have to work. So there, there, needs, there needs to be an understanding from whoever works out, the player and the player and the team, we're all on the same page. Yeah, we're all working on this to get him elite at what you guys need. Because at the end of the day, you can be a great trainer, you can help a guy develop a great three-point shot, but if that team doesn't care about him shooting trees, he just wastes the summer. Mm-hmm. Makes sense? The yeah. second one, obviously, is like individual progression of your game. So it's clear that a player that has mid-range, you can move it to a three-point range, 
And uh, I mean, I can think about Sergi Baca did an amazing job in that. You mm-hmm. keep your progression as a player until you find the moment where you can use that skill for your team. It's, yeah, a really was, hard, it's really hard to understand this concept because we live in a society where everybody wants everything right now. We work on improving shooting. I want to shoot right now. Everything is a slow process. It might take, you put the base one summer, you might see the results three years later. Yeah, and like I, I interrupt you for a second because I, I basically finished reading a Stephen Adams book, uh, which um, has been released on Amazon, I think, on, on uh, August the 1st. And there is a part, and I suggest everyone to read it because it's, it's really good. I mean, Stephen is a, an amazing personality and there there is the full Stephen Adams experience. But one chapter that he detailed with uh, like ma- many details about his off-season training. And he was uh, discussing the same thing that you just said. I mean, and the point was, I'm shooting floaters and hook shots from day one in the NBA. But I, in the first year, I knew that I was very good at dunking and rebounding and probably try to block some shots. And I just did that on the court. Because if I want to help my team... I have to rely on the things that I know will work at the very, very high level. And so it's, it's like what you said. I mean, he was working like, for example, uh, he was working on the floater for his entire rookie season. And he started to use that in the third year of his career consistently. So two, two full season ahead. And so it, it's, it's very important to, to, to understand patience and to understand efficiency. Like, I think that this is the things that you said are extremely crucial. You may be able, like for example, Thomas. Thomas was clearly able to shoot trees at the college level, but he was extremely efficient. I remember us having the discussion. Yes, like it may be good for Thomas to shoot a bit, uh, like some trees more, but he's shooting seventy-two percent at the rim. So why bother? Like there is time to include that in his game, and so that's. I think it's it's a very smart point and a really smart way to go at it. And there is another. thing. I want to add because uh, I think one of the greatest, greatest thing that people might uh, find hard to grasp about NBA players is they work their off. Yeah. I mean, you're not in the NBA if you don't work your off. Uh, so clearly, like the, the second part, the implementing your, your work into your game is the really, really hard one because confidence comes in because moments comes in uh, sometimes you might work on shooting three and you make in practice 75 percent and then you go in game and your first shot rims in and you feel great about it all the work you're doing is paying off it rims out you don't shoot for other five games so there is a lot of it's a lot more complicated than going to gym and and work off which is the first part uh but then there is this part and then there is the third part is well, sometimes you work so much on something, like you said, and then you forget what you're good at. That's another thing that happened. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and you end up putting yourself in a box that you built because you want to be... It happens a lot, for example, with some shooters that tell them all you do is shooting trees, you never drive, you never drive, and now all they work is on driving. Now they still driving. And the shooting is less reliable. So there is a lot of aspect in, in developing player. It's not an easy process by any means. It's something that every NBA player tries to do. 
And clearly there is factors in the organization that helps succeed in a process or not succeed in a process. And uh, I think Oklahoma City, having the Spurs mentality is one of the teams that clearly did a, does a great job and put a lot of emphasis on developing players. Other teams probably do a great job behind the curtains in doing what we said first, like developing things that help the team. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe they don't stood out and people don't notice. So there, there is an aspect there, the um, appreciation, I think, the fans should have for how much work and how hard it is to actually get better at that level, at the highest level you can play. Yeah, but now now you have to tell me because uh, I slide into a very uh, diehard fans uh, uh, of the Thunder. Why Andrew Robertson can't shoot trees? Like he should, uh, he should practice more. No, I, I'm kidding, but uh, it's a good example that I, I think that Andre, he's an art worker. Like no one says that he doesn't work hard. So is there a ceiling on what you can improve, uh, how much you can improve as a shooter? Like there shooting absolutely in particular. A ceiling. There is absolutely a ceiling for players. It's uh, every player. We all, all the people that ever play basketball, we have a ceiling. But in That's- terms of shooting, like uh, for, forget about like every aspect of the game. Just do your corner trees, full stop. There is, there is absolutely a, there is a ceiling because at one point there is a mental aspect that comes into play. There is a 25 years of history of you in, doing that without success or with success, which is the reason why sometimes you see people that don't shoot the ball well, but somehow they make it. Mm-hmm. They make it. Uh, it doesn't matter. Like, uh, he shoots 38. And there is people who shoot great, great technique. They change their shot. And they can make it because first time they miss one, you freeze. Mm-hmm. I mean, they, it's hard. It's like, a, I always compare it to like a medical surgeon. Mm-hmm. I mean, you can be a great uh, orthopedic, but mm-hmm. if you have to do a open heart situation, you can study all you want. You might never be as good as you were as orthopedic. Does it make sense? Like there is yeah, certain yeah. skills that... You can push to the limit, you can work around, but when it comes down to like you have to make that play, you you need to have a lot of confidence. That's why you see the players that probably improve the most in every aspect of their game, uh, like shooting and driving and then they add post game and then they add whatever. If you go and look, they're always like the greatest one. Because of yeah. a series of factors, like their confidence level of Kobe, LeBron, uh, Russ, uh, uh, this kind of player is so high, like they can really go in the gym in summer, work on something and be like, okay, I'm good. I put my time into this. Now I'm going to show it. But for players that are like, normal players, these are like elite level people. Yeah. Players, athletes, whatever, like their mindset is like elite for regular people, they maybe are very talented and very good. There is always a, a barrier to, to an obstacle to jump in order to really show their progress on things they're working on. Yeah. No, I mean, it, it, makes, it makes total sense. I was just, uh, of course, uh, kidding just to, um, to introduce the idea that shooting uh, can be uh, like improved. Uh, like 
is that, is that it's just up to how many shoots, shots you you try and practice um, whether you can make it uh, on on court. And that's of course uh, not what happens. But I I, al- I also like the idea of like players that have self confidence. And I go back to Steven's book because there were, there was one part. And if you if you if you hear like Steven's um, interviews, he's always humble. He says like I just throw up shots and they happen to go in. But there was a point where he said uh, I had. Like when I was 15, 16, and I, like I was tall, I was strong. I knew that if I work hard, I was going to, like NBA was a real chance. And so to me, that speaks of a guy that knows and has confidence in his moves. Uh, of course, he wants to, he's a perfectionist, so he wants to do uh, things properly. But uh, there is a, an aspect uh, that you just mentioned about like self-confidence, the, the idea that you have a path in mind and you know that if you train hard enough, you will succeed. And that's uh, like, it's hard to have that mindset, especially when you, you, when, as you said, you have an history of being a bad shooter. Maybe you're like the most confident guy in like 90% of your, of your game, but there's the 10% of your game that you are not confident on. And it's very hard uh, to be confident in that area again. There is a human aspect to that. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is very current is, I mean, there are tons of things in as everybody, every person that we know we shouldn't do or we should do and we just don't do. Mm-hmm. Right? Like every, everybody said, like, you're not going to meet your girlfriend if you don't go and speak to her in a bar. But many guys don't go and speak to her. Right? Mm-hmm. Which is totally logic if you think about it. Um, the same is true with basketball and, and getting better. Everybody knows that if you do your work, you should be better. But somehow we tell ourselves that, ah, you see, it's not working. That's why, that's why I think like people that, like it's interesting what you said about Stephen Adams because he, he grasped the concept of like, me doing this is going to lead to that. That's an important concept to grasp. Because yeah. many people just say like, I want to be there. Yeah. But then their action, what they do, does not reflect that at all. Mm-hmm. Because if you ask every NBA player, like, should you drink and, and go out um, during the season? I mean, nobody's going to tell you, yes, you should, right? But then yeah. many do. Yeah. And, and there is nothing wrong with that. Is Everybody's different. I'm just saying, that, like, what people say and what people do is two very different concepts. And that's why I really like when players love the process. Those are the ones that make the huge jump. Because for them, the real fun is, like, Go in the gym and work their off and and get be- get better, and then suddenly they need to grasp the concept like, hey, I did all this, I can do it in the game, I can do it in the NBA, I can do it uh, the next level. It's very simple to say, very hard to do, but uh, it, I mean, it is something out there that I want for fans to understand that every NBA player wants to get better. Yeah, and uh, and sometimes you know we. We evaluate if a player gets better, like Robertson and shooting, but he does a million other things very good. Oh yeah, and he's oh, yeah. getting better on. And and I know Oklahoma City fans know that, but uh, for no very passionate fans, it's hard to grasp this concept. Yeah, so uh, let's uh, forget about all these general generic talks, and for the uh, few minutes that we have left, let's focus a bit on on OKC and what they did in the off season. Um, I know, like going back to the to the discussion that we had before. So, 
talent versus uh, ideal fit. And I think that Dennis Schroeder represents kind of that um, conundrum because he is clearly a talent. And in some sense, OKC needed uh, help from the bench because we all knew that, like, we all know that uh, their bench was terrible last year, like flat out terrible, no, no matter if Paul George was on or not. Uh, but on the other end, you cannot take, you cannot expect Danny Schroeder to be on your roster and play him just when Russ sits. And so, like, suppose that you, are, that you have free reigns uh, to, to coach the team. How do you make the fit between Russell Westbrook and Danny Schroeder on the court work? Well, first of all, Coach Billy Donovan is way better than me at doing that. <laughs> so but I, I will, cannot I have will, him first here. Of all, I will, first of all, trust him. Yeah. That would be my number one thing because he, he's won a lot and he probably thinking as a plan for it. Um, but I think, I think players want to be good and they want to win. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think Schroeder in the last couple of years was in a very competitive team for mm-hmm. a variety of reasons. And uh, I think he is very excited about joining a good team um, where he's going to play with uh, the two All-Stars, where he's going to have a role uh, for him, at least in, on paper, there is a clear role for him mm-hmm. of being kind of the Manu Ginobili mm-hmm. of, uh, of Oklahoma City, the James Harden guy. And uh, obviously you'll have to find some compromise and give him some with Russell and things like that, but I think if there is the willing of players to win and do everything you can to win, then everything is easier. Everything else is easier. One of the greatest things the Golden State has been able to do in the last five years, and mm-hmm. especially the last two with Kevin Durant, is everybody sacrificing the way they play. I'm talking just the way they play because I'm not there in the locker room. I don't know what happened there. But just the way they play, they sacrifice on the floor for each other in terms of movement, in terms of giving up the ball, of shooting less, of having less touches. It's, it's not something very common mm-hmm. that happened, and especially the movement part. So yeah. whatever is the plan for Coach Donovan for next year, <laughs> the, what's going to make you work or not work is how much every player is going to buy into doing it, which sounds very cliche, but mm-hmm. makes a huge difference because at the end of the day, the players are the one that scores basket, they make plays, win or lose games. And uh, clearly there is a culture in Oklahoma City. You can like it or not like it, but there is a culture. And uh, Schroeder can fit that culture, which I don't think from the outside, so easy to say. I don't think Carmelo really fit that culture. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe sure there is the right piece for that culture. So I would be very excited if I'm an Oklahoma City fan. Yeah, I mean, uh, like the idea of movement and to give up the ball, it's to me crucial because like uh, it's two seasons now that when Russ is off the ball, at least for spurts, uh, for example, in ATOs, uh, so after timeout uh, situation or um, inbounds play, he he showed to, shown to be very effective. And so it's hard to be off ball when there is no one that can play a pick and roll or that can take a guy in ISO. Uh, and so to me, like if those two guys try to make it work in the sense that they they are available to move 
uh, when the other guy has the ball and to interchange in that leading uh, ball handler uh, role, I think that they can have like something special there. Do you agree? Yeah, I'm, I think there is. There is always uh, you look how you look how Houston did it with um, Chris Paul and James Harden. Obviously, different system, all about mm-hmm. spacing, but obviously they sacrificed the minutes they were they staggered the minutes, but the minutes they were together. One of the two was off the ball. And uh, they both had great success with it. Now, I think at the end of the day, it's not really the system. Uh, most NBA teams run the same things. It's not going to make a huge difference. But the way you interpret the system makes a huge difference. Because you can be aggressive off the ball. You can be passive off the ball. Mm-hmm. And vice versa, you can be looking for your teammates. When you have the ball, you can be attacking by yourself. So it is a lot of different factors that comes into play of like, this is working, this is not working. I certainly think like Schroeder has been on a team, he's going to a new opportunity. I win for, pr- probably first time that he's like in a team that can compete mm-hmm. to some extent, even yeah. considering the West is really tough next yeah. year. But uh, I think there is always a... No, a problem in play. I'm um, not problem, but a maturity process for mm-hmm. players. And sometimes when they get traded to another place, it's for them an opportunity to blossom and make the next step. Sometimes they get lost. Sometimes they stay the same. But um, sure, there is a young guy, European guy. I'm sure he wants to have some success. So I, I would be hopeful, and I think what the organization is thinking that he can make that next step in becoming an elite, elite point guard. And he, by the way, I coached against him with Italy, against Germany when I was an yep. assistant with Italy and he killed us. Yeah. So <laughs> he better, he better do something good in the NBA too. <laughs> yeah, I remember that game. Uh, his pick and roll game just basically, and isolation game just basically killed every Italian defender. Uh, last thing, uh, I promise. And then I like to go. Um, So OKC decided to get basically all the wings that were available, A, in the draft, B, uh, in uh, the kind of uh, free agency or whatever. And so they have like uh, Deontay Barton, Nader that they trade from Boston, Diallo that they they signed from Kentucky, uh, and then Holden and Herbie. So basically what they did, uh, um, besides removing Melo and add Schroeder, was to try to have as many buys at the Apple in terms of finding a wing that can play the game, uh, that can shoot the ball and play maybe uh, some defense. And they also um, snagged uh, Timothée Luau Cabarro uh, from Philadelphia in the Melo trade. Uh, who's the guy that you like the most and why? It's a it's a tough question because I think there is a no there is it's just it's just depending what Coach Donovan wants and mm-hmm. what what is expecting from all of them. I think the clear idea now looking the NBA uh, from the outside is always like what I call project. Mm-hmm. Talking in the beginning about uh, how you build a roster, I think mm-hmm. there is a tendency now in the NBA to have your. 9, 10, 11, 12 men being kind of like projects. Mm-hmm. And, and the Celtics are probably leading the way in this. Mm-hmm. Um, guys that don't take much space in the salary cap, that you can develop into the role you want or you you hope they fit the role you want. And uh, they're guys that can contribute and they can give you something. So I think you edge your bet, kind of, on two, three players. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, 
you go from there and maybe in two years from now, one of those guys is a starter or plays huge minutes for you. But say that you have to place a bet because I force you to. Uh, who's the guy? Like what, what quality you like the most on those? Like, uh, of course, there, there, people are interested in Diallo and Burton, and Burton because they, they are completely different player. Uh, they, one is as raw as hell in Diallo, but has a crazy athleticism. And the other one is, seems like uh, a Polish player. Uh, like he can do basically kind of everything on the court. He's also kind of think athletic, even if it's like uh, 250. Uh, and so should that, should Thunder fans be happy and excited about those two guys? I, I think they should. I think they should. Uh, Barton scored 30 points against us. So clearly I saw <laughs> the best of him too. Uh, but he's a, he's a very talented player. He's a player that can get catch fire. Mm -hmm. uh, probably was lacking a little consistency when he was in college. Mm -hmm. And I think now he's maturing and he can find a perfect role. I mean, he can play the four easily uh, at that level and, uh, and be a problem. And be a problem because he's strong enough to guard people and switching ball screen. Um, that's, what, that's what I think he, is very interesting about him. He's a good rebounder. He's a freak athlete. Mm -hmm. And then uh, Diallo is another is a very young player, obviously really talented, big time athlete. Uh, he probably didn't shoot the ball as well in uh, in Kentucky, mm -hmm. but that's a compliment. There's yeah. no, there's no, it's not, it's not big enough sample. Sorry, mm -hmm. what did you say? No, no, I said that that's a compliment to say that he didn't shoot, he didn't shoot very well. He was, he was yeah, kind of bad. Yeah, yeah, con considering the expectation also. No, it, there was there was a lot of expectation on him being uh, one of the best players in college basketball. It was a very good one. Probably wasn't the best mm -hmm. um, for whatever situation. But uh, I think he's one of those guys that can benefit from being in the NBA, more space, mm -hmm. focus is on them. Now we can freely, if you let me pass the term, uh, hang out in the offense and find his spot because people will be more focused on other guys. So obviously, I think it's going to be a process for him more than Barton. I think for Diallo, it's going to take some years. Mm -hmm. um, but he can clearly explode. And three years from now, we're talking about a completely different player. Now, and I think Oklahoma City fans should be excited about Ferguson this year. Mm -hmm. um, I'm sure he's going to make some steps. He's very young guys. People forget when you're 18, 19, you get better. Yeah. getting older so it's hard to i think that's the most exciting part about diallo is like a very very young prospect um that is kind of like a blank canvas and now mm -hmm. we'll see if he comes up with a da vinci or he comes up with like the paint i made when i was in school. <laughs> well thank you thank you again rick for uh taking time of your summer uh to jump on and have this conversation i think that um that thunder fans will will enjoy that no problem thank you see you soon and uh of course um this week uh i don't know the schedule yet you will probably have the wednesday pod surely with alex pierce and we will know who uh will be on um thank you again for taking time and leaving us uh your five star itunes uh, review if you didn't do that please go up uh, on your apple podcast app open it just hit the five star this will this is very important for our pod we'll talk to you uh on wednesday 